You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. And Solaray, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of New Economy and joining me as usual is ITK analyst David Leach. David, how are you? Uh, well, thanks, Giles. And as we and I trust all our listeners are enjoying the podcast and uh, and uh, having a good start to 2020, although, of course, many haven't. But uh, as we said last week, uh, this year in the electricity market uh, and the politics market, it's all, it started out very fast. Started out very fast indeed. So this week is the return of Parliament to 2020. I don't know how many days they're going to sit this year. I think they managed a grand total of 35 or 50 or something. I don't know. It wasn't, didn't, didn't sound like very much last year, but... Um, Already some interesting things. Um, new leader for the Greens, Richard Di Natale, has um, shocked everyone by stepping aside. And um, I've got to say that's a shame for me because I think Richard Di Natale was one of the few people who actually talked sense, actually talked coherently um, about um, climate change policies and energy policy in a way that... Um, was not particularly scary, but um, went with the science, and um, I think um, I think he's going to be missed. But um, be interesting to see who replaces him. Adam Bant looks the most likely at the moment. Uh, well, you know, I think uh, Adam's focused very heavily on electricity. He's been on the podcast here before, and uh, I found his make sense. I, I personally didn't find Richard Di Natale cut through all that well. Uh, but I do uh, appreciate that the vote of the Greens overall has remained constant or even increased a little bit uh, in some areas, uh, despite the fact that they have had to deal with damaging splits at a state level, for instance, here in New South Wales. But uh, insofar as possible, we really should stick to something we know about, uh, which of course isn't very much, but uh, a little bit about electricity. And we have a special guest this this week, uh, Giles, that really is trying to cut a new path in the political field that will could heavily influence the electricity market. Well, that's right. Look, I think we've talked about, um, um, well, yes. So, so Zali Stegall, of course, is the independent MP for Warringah. She unseated Tony Abbott in spectacular fashion last year. Um, didn't stop the coalition getting back into power, of course. But last October, she unveiled her plans to introduce a um, climate change act something along the lines of the uk and i think new zealand might have one as well anyway look we caught up with zali stegall um earlier today and um this is what she had to say zali stegall member for warringah thanks very much for joining energy insiders podcast my pleasure you last year, I think it was in October, unveiled your climate change bill that you wanted to bring through Parliament. Can you just remind us exactly what you proposed and why? And maybe also tell us, given what's happened over the summer with the bushfires, do you have a greater hope now that it might be embraced by the major parties? Sure. Look, I was elected very much on a platform of trying to bring a sensible solution to what I would describe as our climate change policy wars. Um, I think probably for the last 10 years, and sadly, that was the contribution of Warringah with um, my the pre- my predecessor, Tony Abbott. So uh, I guess uh, the, the hope is that Warringah is going to bring forward a sensible plan to, to make up for that. Um, 
look, the, the plan, uh, once I was elected, I very much set about understanding what other jurisdictions have done, what other countries have done, and where have they been so much more successful than us in achieving uh, good outcomes and, and being able to have a bipartisan approach to the issue. And the UK really stood out. They, they passed the Climate Change Act in 2008, and it remains policy today. It survived uh, the Brexit. It survived three prime ministerships and changes of government and it really is accepted as a good solid framework legislation that allows a country to decarbonise and address climate change across all its sectors. Um, so in uh, October last year I really flagged that that was where I felt Australia needed to head. We need a sensible plan forward and we need to elevate the issue of climate change uh, up to it's really a moral question and a con uh, to a conscience vote that I think all parties need to come on board and find a bipartisan approach to what is a security, safety, health impact, you know, issue for the future. Um, so uh, the legislation, we've been working on it, the drafters, it's getting pretty close to being ready for public consultation um, and I will be meeting with uh, MPs and both sides of uh, political, you know, parties shortly about it and really trying to offer it as a sensible way forward to get out of the divisive policy, uh, politics around it and move forward. It's focused on uh, a strong risk assessment uh, first section and then a risk management and adaptation plans that need to be done across all sectors like health and agriculture, uh, industry, transport and of course energy and then we need our long-term decarbonising goal which is a net uh, under the Paris Agreement we've agreed to, to limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees which means we have agreed to a net zero by 2050 but we haven't legislated that so I think it is really important that we get that into legislation just as most of our state governments have now put it in policy or legislation as well so all I'm really saying to the Australian federal government is, uh, and the federal parliament is, let's get our federal level in step with what business is doing and what state governments are doing. Um, and then key to, to driving this is a strong, independent, expert-based climate change commission who will be undertaking the risk assessment of sectors and then reviewing and advising government on its plans and uh, five-year emission reduction budget periods. So that sounds very like the UK plan, which started with, I think, a 60% reduction target. And uh, over time, I think they've had five of these uh, plans that now run out to 2032. The UK is one of five countries that's around the world that's actually legislated. And I think I agree with you. It's the absolute model for how to do it and enjoyed very strong support. But it, it sounds to me like uh, your proposed uh, bill is very similar and, and quite closely modelled on, on the UK uh, concept? Absolutely. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm an, uh, I, I'm, I entered into this and very much looking for how do we have a sensible way forward? This is current UK Conservative government policy. Last year uh, they increased their, uh, their net, they increased, they passed an amendment to uh, legislate net zero by 2050. So this should not be controversial. This is, in fact, the sensible way forward. Um, and any future amendments to that kind of long-term goal should be done with advice from the expert being the Climate Change Commission. I'll hand back to Giles in a second, and it's naughty of me to take two questions. But uh, in, 
realistically, what do you, if we ran through the various people in the Senate just to start with, uh, what kind of level of support do you think you're going to get? For instance, will the ALP, obviously the Greens will, I think, would support it. Uh, what about the ALP and the independents? What, what, as you stand here today, what's your, your view? Uh, look, my, my hope is that this is something a little like if I take you back to under John Howard, uh, the gun um, legislation, the gun control, that there was a really strong push that we needed, Australians needed to feel safe. We needed strong legislation across party lines that would keep Australians safe. And I would very much say that is what we need to do on climate change and need to make sure we've got that framework. So my push is yes, for the crossbench to support it, uh, for the opposition to support it, but mostly for the government to support it. This is absolutely legislation that the government can adopt because it is conservative policy. Policy in, in the UK. It's interesting that idea, but it's conservative policy to um, in the UK, and it's probably a conservative thing to sort of protect the things around them. Um, do you sense? I know, I know Parliament's only just resuming this week, and people have only just got back into Canberra. But do you get a sense that the goalposts or the things might have changed um, after the bushfires over the summer season? Well, I think what's been really interesting is for maybe the quiet Australians who accept climate change is an issue that we need to deal with, but maybe have thought that it was more remote, that it was something maybe for in 10 years' time. I think what the bushfire season has done is it made it very immediate. This is an immediate risk to your health and safety. We've had major cities in Australia uh, with record numbers days of very poor air pollution. Uh, we know kids getting used to school days being closed because of extreme heat, uh, people getting used to having P2 masks to wear to work, uh, businesses in cities having to shut down because uh, fire alarms are going off because of the air pollution being so bad and the smoke. So, uh, And then you have these communities that are having to be evacuated from beaches. They've lost their homes. This really is a question of security and safety. Um, and then, of course, we've got this record drought that continues in regional areas that are really struggling. So there, I, I think the case for we need to keep Australians safe with a much better plan and a long-term commitment. If not now, then when? I mean, what more would it take uh, for both sides of policy, politics to come together and say, right, we do need to keep Australians safe from what we are facing? Well, that's a very good question, actually. What more would it take? Look, tell me about some of the climate change bill, the, the, the details that you're going to be announcing, because um, is it more than just a broad strategy for zero carbon and, um, by 2050? You talked about the individual sectors. Are you prescribing suggested policies for each of those sectors or is it more of a broader pitch? Because I, mean, I guess the frustrating thing is in Australia's case, if you actually go back five years, we did have a climate change authority whose remit was not specifically this, but in in a broad sense, it was to provide advice to the government, but it's now being ignored. And Australia did actually have a zero emissions target, but that was re repealed along with the carbon price by your predecessor in Warringah. But um, anyway, back to the Climate Change Act. Um, how specific do you want to be in the details? No, and I think that's where it's really important. As an independent, I am putting forward that sensible framework forward. It is up to government and opposition to really fight it out on the on the how, on the detail as far as policy. And there are different arguments, uh, and that is something to be to, to be, I think, debated. So no, I think that's been maybe the issue in the past is by descending into those specifics as to policy, uh, we've we've as a result we've failed to put in place 
uh, an agreement as to where we're heading and it's allowed it's allowed this really negative debate around questioning that we should even mm. do that so we ne- I think you need to take the problem one step at a time and the first step has to be that we all need to lock in where we're heading what kind of future do we want and then what are the safe frameworks we need to put in place to make that happen so I make the analogy if you decide you want to go and run a, a marathon right you don't set out and tomorrow you go and run 42 k's but what you do do is set out a training plan where you know in the first month you need to reach certain uh, milestones and you need to set certain goals to reach along the way that will allow you to reach that goal ultimately we haven't got that at the moment as far as long-term planning and policy on climate Um, and it's what every sector is desperately calling out for, especially the business sector. I mean, uh, from an, from a sensible economic management, uh, we desperately need that long-term plan so that the business sector can have uh, long-term policy certainty of knowing how it can plan around what, what government is, is compelled to do, which is have a sensible fiscal responsibility around its response to climate change. For listeners who haven't uh, looked at this in the UK, I think there was a private member's bill which never actually was voted on in 2007 because an election was called. The climate uh, change bill in the UK was actually introduced by Labor. I think Gordon Brown was it, who was the Prime Minister, but had a huge amount of support as, as a sort of early motion, one of the most popular early motions that's ever been in the UK. And that was back at the time when Kevin Rudd was Prime Minister in Australia. So you, you can see globally there was very strong momentum just uh, and as far as the uh, business community, I'd note the major energy users uh, specifically said in their recommendation to the uh, um, Energy Security Board uh, uh, post-2025 market design that they want a carbon price. That's the big business end consumers want a carbon price framework. But uh, Zali, I, I think uh, one of the interesting things is that Labor's tried to frame this uh, without putting forward a, de- a definitive policy around uh, the job opportunities and the economics, and you're trying to frame it, as I hear, as, as, a, as a safety and moral debate. I'm more interested in the famous quiet Australians who really aren't all that quiet when you get them on their own. They're very uh, vocal, a lot of them, about what they think, about what you think is going to be most persuasive. Is it going to be psychological or economic arguments or, or, or some combination of both in your experience? Uh, look, I think uh, what for those many quiet Australians is actually that they now realise that the health and safety risk is actually now. This isn't some uh, theoretical problem for the future or for future generations. It's actually happening now. Um, we've had, you know, they either either had to evacuate their homes because of the bushfire crisis that continues, uh, that is going to just have a massive impact across communities for years to come, whether it be economic because of tourism and business. Uh, and jobs in those areas, the rebuild, the, the, the health costs uh, from, from the air pollution, but also the emotional, the mental health costs. Um, we really, I mean, we, we, it's just such a massive impact. And the worst aspect is that is only a taste of things to come. We're currently on track to such a warmer world. So um, when the Prime Minister says, oh, well, let's just adapt and become resilient and this is our new normal, we have to be very truthful about what our new normal is. The new normal is this is going to get worse. This is not 
you know, this is only the tip of the iceberg. So um, I think, it, it, you know, the, the case for uh, having to move this to a question of safety and a moral issue is absolutely there. We have to decide what, what this is going to be. Now, in terms of mechanisms, I feel that that's where we, our focus has always been, whether it's a price on carbon and what kind of mechanism is the right way to address it. I think that's where there is room for debate between the parties as to how they deliver that. And that is a question to put to elections. Um, but it shouldn't be a question of, of, of sort of uh, focusing on whether we should even go there at all. That's something that, should, you know, keeping Australia safe should be a unified goal of all parties. And how have the discussions gone so far? You, you talk about this sort of um, negotiations coming over different week uh, over the coming weeks with Labor and Liberals. Will that be about? Is is there room for manoeuvre on some of these things, or must the final goal be the zero carbons by twenty fifty, and then just work backwards from there? Of course. Well, look, I'm sure there will be aspects that um, various people will want to talk about, but we have essentially drafted this in the most vanilla way as possible, if I can say. Um, <laughs> the, keeping keeping uh, global warming to below two degrees requires at the minimum a net zero by 2050. That is accepted. That is part of the Paris Agreement. So there is nothing there and that is not already well signed then, yes. on. But And again, there is flexibility in that we have an independent climate change commission to advise on the science, you know, taking into account where the IPCC, the BOM, the CSIRO, all those uh, key expert um, bodies can advise on what needs to be done. So I am putting forward uh, what I think is the sensible pathway. The, the quiet Australians, ironically, are who put me into Parliament. Um, it was very much that sense of we actually need a plan. We need to break the divisiveness of the party politics on this issue and raise it to a matter of conscience. So my mm. argument to most MPs, especially the coalition MPs, is this should be a conscience vote. You are a broad church. We know that. Um, and you have elements that disagree and deny climate change but you also have an, a huge element that support action on climate change but for the moment it's a voice that we're not hearing uh, and is not effective within the party room so if this becomes a conscience vote then you can all be true to your constituents and that's why we're building a big uh, a public campaign that people need to pressure their MPs. Yeah. Have you done so, Zali, I, I think that's very interesting. Very interesting, and I uh, congratulate you for that approach, which is modelled on the UK, because I do think it acts as something of a circuit breaker over specific schemes about like carbon prices and so on. Uh, so, and I, th I do think it's important to establish political will and, and, and a private member's bill uh, from someone who was elected in a previously a Liberal electorate is, is is the sort of thing that we really should be looking for. My next question is: I'm wondering. Uh, what you can say in, about the conversations you may have had with members of the uh, Liberal uh, Party in Parliament, uh, both in the upper and lower house, as, as to, I mean, realistically, the uh, people that, are, that have been anti-climate change are very much in the ascendancy. Let's not muck around about the absolute reality of that. Uh, and uh, we've always suspected that there are people who, who would, along with the 70% of Australians, uh, who want to see more done, that would like to support things uh, more. But, I mean, what, I mean, how, how much real support do you, ex do you honestly expect to get? Have you had any indications about it? 
Uh, look, uh, until I can actually give them the exact bill and show exactly what's in it, there's a lot of, I guess, uh, speculation and fear. So that's very much at the moment we're just consulting, I guess, from a legal point of view on the final aspects of some of the drafting. Uh, but it's very much at that stage where I'll be uh, and I'm meeting with members of the crossbench um, and opposition this week. My focus on government with government will be next week. Um, and so once I have something that is very much publicly available so that you can see that this isn't prescriptive as to mechanisms is absolutely letting government govern but it is asking for it to govern with certain principles and objects in mind which have to be keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees and having a fiscally responsible approach to decarbonizing our economy um, and, and generational equity is another massive principle where we have to have short medium and long-term approach to this and it can't just be left to future generations to do we have to do our bit now um, and then looking at employment transition programs uh, in the risk assessment across all sectors it of course looks at which regions or sectors are going to be impacted from an employment point of view and then the risk management planning has to take into account what needs to happen from those from the employment sector so more than just saying oh we'll provide just transition it's got it's specifically included in the framework that that has to be planned for and accounted for by government. Um, I think from the public's point of view, the massive element it wants is more accountability, more transparency. So it is looking at um, that there is regular reporting to parliament uh, by both the minister but also the commission and reporting on how the government's plans are delivering. Now, we have elections every three years, so it creates a very quick level of accountability to the Australian people on whether or not you're delivering your emission reduction budgets. It sounds very comprehensive. Um, independent um, members of parliament don't get a huge amount of resources. Um, who have you managed to turn to for advice on this? Uh, look, a lot of people are very focused on this issue from both sides of the aisle, I should say. You know, everyone, uh, especially with, uh, I think over the next few weeks, I'm hoping to have major industry groups stand up in support because everyone is calling out for um, for this framework, for a better plan forward um, and for an end to it. So, of course, there's been prominent um, uh, people up Guess I'm not going to be completely public just yet, but uh, we have been uh, consulting uh, with who I would say are leaders in the field in in really this kind of legislation. You've also announced this week a um, a roadmap to zero. <clears throat> excuse me on on your website. It seems to be much more targeted towards what people, the quiet Australians and the householders, can do towards um, reducing their emissions. Is that right? What's what's the what's the um, idea behind that program? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as an independent MP, I'm absolute, I'm accountable to my electorate. Um, so it's really important to deliver federally, um, you know, in terms of legislation, but also to deliver locally. Um, a lot of people feel a lot of anxiety around climate change and where we're heading and feel quite powerless. So our goal was very much to empower everybody because just as I believe Australia can do its bit uh, for world emissions and as a leader, I believe uh, Warringah and, and every community can do its bit to reduce emissions and lead the way for other communities. So this is very much a model that can be replicated across other communities around Australia. Um, and it's trying to get the information to people because a lot of people, you know, some are quite far down the track of 
sort of being aware of their level of waste um, and emissions coming from their household and others are not so far down that track. And it's not about shaming or criticising people for what they're not doing. It's about empowering people to, to make a difference and see what are the things they can do. So we've on purpose split it up across um, all the different sectors that you can address, so from food and waste, water, uh, finance, transport, uh, and, and, and a number of aspects and then easy, medium, hard and hero steps you can take. And so starting to really equip people with information so that they can do their bit as well. And I think, you know, it's been the, the whole environment, sort of reducing emissions, uh, waste management, water has been so divisive. It's been used as a political tool for too long. And I think now it's got to be the opportunity for communities to come together rather than criticise and judge one another. David, uh, I've got. A, I've got. Look, it's, we're coming to the end of the time, and I think we've canvassed the issue fairly, uh, fairly well. I just wanted to compare uh, uh, being being an Olympic skier with being an MP. Uh, <laughs> uh, are they both equally interesting? Are you enjoying the role? They are. It's, um, look, I'm, I'm loving the role. It's, it's an incredible privilege. Um, I, I feel like my career as an athlete and then my career as a barrister were both the perfect preparation. Um, look, I'm no stranger to setting what might seem like a big goal and maybe, you know, in terms of it being quite daunting, but you have to you have to be ambitious in setting goals and then you work your way backwards in how you achieve it. What are the steps you can do? Um, I know as a kid everyone thought it was impossible a girl from Manly Beach could win the world championships in skiing and yet we managed to do it. So I have great faith in our ability to um, uh, to really turn around our approach to, to climate and environment uh, and our waste management uh, to being uh, much better leaders in the world. <laughs> yes, I don't think progress comes in a straight line. And uh, I've said this before, but I recall you coming in to speak uh, about motivation at JP Morgan when I was there many years ago and uh, saying that, you know, you didn't leave anything on the table. And um, I hope you go for this climate change legislation in the same way, because I think everyone, or most people listening to this podcast will feel that uh, um, we really need to progress as quickly as possible. Thanks. Absolutely. <laughs> Aiming high. <laughs> Good on you. Thank you very much, Sally, for um, joining the uh, Energy Insiders podcast. Thank you. Keep up the good work, raising the good issues. So that was Zali Stegel, the independent member for Warringah. Um, I should add at the end that there's um, one thing we didn't include in the um, conversation, which Zali reminded us um, afterwards, was um, the launch of a website, Climate Act Now. And that's kind of her sort of plea for everyone to get involved, to use that site as a way of getting in touch with the local members and basically um, sort of almost like an independent referendum type of thing. So she's looking to get um, support from there and add pressure to the major parties to bring about a conscience vote in Parliament. Um, David, look, it's a really good idea. Australia should have a Climate Change Act. Um, do we think Zali Stegg was going to be able to bring it about? Uh, look, I'm certainly going to be out there making sure that uh, to do what I can to assist the process along. Uh, I think it's quite clever uh, having an independent MP, one uh, with a, a um, a capitalist bias, if I can put it that way, um, uh, introducing an independent uh, bill in the same way that it was introduced in the UK. And I don't think anyone can argue that the UK legislation has, has been anything but extremely successful. 
And of course, we already know that the UK has basically completely got rid of coal. Uh, and so they, they are actually a long way ahead. Not only has the legislation in the UK enjoyed a lot of support, but the actual objectives of reducing carbon emissions are proceeding very well. However, it is also fair to say that there's a lot more vested interests in Australia. Australia is a resources economy. We have a massive coal export. Coal is our number one or number two export, depending on which day of the week. LNG uh, and iron ore, iron ore is energy intensive. LNG is carbon intensive. Uh, uh, So it's harder in Australia. No one's ever going to argue with that. Uh, But at the same time, we also have, as you know, Giles, and as people will tell you every day of the week, a huge opportunity economically, even Labor says this, um, to to develop our export capabilities in low-cost renewable energy. So it's harder in Australia. And frankly, uh, you you know as well as I do that the hardliners in Parliament aren't going to go at this. No, it's a bit of a shame. Um, it's interesting you mentioned about the, um, well, well, I guess we'll see. I mean, over the next few weeks, um, Zali Stegall and her team will be working the corridors and um, I guess they might get some support from certainly from the crossbench and the Greens. Um, Labor is no um, certainty on it, but do you like to think that they would embrace this? Um, it'd be interesting to see. We do hear a lot about the pressure being put on sort of, you know, so-called moderate um, members of the Liberal Party, but I think in the past we've even heard the moderate members of the Liberal Party talking absolute nonsense because they feel they have to. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see um, exactly what does happen. Um, on the minors, that's, that's the big hope. That, sorry, 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 Giles. It's it's worth pointing out. And Zali said this. It's actually the big hope here is the moderates in the Liberal Party, right? They're the, they are actually the ones uh, that have the power to force change, because uh, in the end, the Liberal Party uh, is a democracy of sorts. And if, if, the, if the Liberal Party rank and file members of parliament get up there and tell the bosses that something has to be done, then something will be done. It's not the Labor Party in this case. Uh, it, it's not the independents. Um, it, it really is within the Liberal Party that the force has to come from. Well, let's see what happens there. Um, interesting, you mentioned some of the miners um, and the power of those miners. Um, a couple of things to note. One was the donations um, for um, 2019 have been revealed. Of course, Clive Palmer confirmed spent $89 million on his um, election campaign, which got him personally nowhere in terms of seats in Parliament, but probably had a major role to play in helping the LNP get back in. And um, possibly also, um, I guess, what he wanted at the end of this was um, the Galilee Basin going ahead and his hopes that he can get his particular coal mine. At least that's what everyone assumes. Um, The Minerals Council and some of the other people um, donating in equal amounts, um, even Trevor St. Baker donating in equal amounts to the Labour Party as well as the Coalition. I guess they expected the Labour Party to win that election, but they didn't. But um, interesting to see that uh, both major parties um, certainly um, getting a lot in their till from the uh, very various fossil fuel lobbyists and um, advocates. Uh, look, I haven't focused on that, Giles. I'm, I'm sure that's the case. Uh, uh, yeah. and indeed, political parties need money to run, you know, I mean, in the end, and I don't believe politics should be badly funded, if I can put it that way, um, uh, because in the end, uh, we deserve to have proper political debate. Uh, and we do have a democracy here, something I think every Australian can feel very proud of. Uh, but Giles, yeah. 
coming back to electricity, last Friday we had a fantastically interesting moment and day that I think uh, 99.5% of Australians completely didn't know what was happening, but we were pretty close to the whole system breaking down again. Well, we're pretty close. I mean, the system was certainly under pressure. I mean, it had um, bushfires, it had heat waves, it had storms, it had tornadoes that pulled down um, two major transmission lines in Victoria, caused the separation, effective separation of South Australia. Um, we had wrote the emergency reserves invoked in three different states. And I got to say, it must have been pretty close because AEMO was very relieved and it was very interesting to see the tweet that Audrey Zieberman, the AEMO CEO, put out um, of a girl bashing away in the drums, obviously full of exuberance. And um, look, I've got to say that probably reflects the relief, but I think it's also fair to say that I think they must have done a pretty damn good job to keep the lights on and um, they had been running the grid fairly conservatively to the frustration of some, but um, a very good result. And I think it's what's going to be interesting over the next two weeks is that South Australia will continue to run as an effective island. It's got a very small link through Murray Link, which is a DC connection and an AC connection, can't really provide energy um, 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 energy security or inertia, but um, can export and import a certain amount of power. But um, it's going to be fascinating to see how that operates in the next two weeks, David. Indeed it will. And uh, so we look forward to a South Australia operating as a, as a, as a, as a electricity market a little bigger or about the size, same size as Ireland without any links and it'll be great. I, we, we, I think they'll get through but we don't know. Uh, second, The second thing to note is something that uh, Paul McArdle uh, has been saying, Giles, uh, a, a lot about wind and that is that wind in summer is pretty useless at times of maximum demand uh, and that's because it tends to be very hot at those times and for whatever reason, the, the actual wind dies down when it's very hot. So wind generation dies down a lot. Now, that's not true in winter. In the middle of winter, when uh, demand can also be very high, electricity demand for heating purposes, wind can do a good job. But in summer, it comes down to uh, solar and it's going to come down to storage more and more. Uh, so we need to get on with developing the storage market uh, as well. Yeah, interesting stuff. Um, and um, I'm not too sure whether there's anything more to say about the New South Wales deal with the coalition government last week. Um, some of those, um, the uh, that sort of deal, sort of uh, for for um, investments in infrastructure for gas. But um, one of the interesting thing is that we don't actually know much about what's going on. In fact, we don't seem to know much about many of the things that have been uh, put forward by the coalition government at the moment. I think with the Yungi process, the um, underwriting new generation investments, and the choice of two gas plants, um, as with the dispersal of this funding announced on Friday. No real visibility or transparency over how and what um, will be allocated and where. Um, a little bit about the sports water fair. Uh, that's right, Charles. Uh, really, in New South Wales, it comes down to the difference between talk and action, and we don't want to uh, go too long on this podcast, but I just noticed that Matt Keane keeps talking a big game, but the reality is legislation's been passed to make it easier to get coal mine environmental approvals, so that's pretty disappointing. Uh, and New South Wales has just agreed to facilitate up to 60 petajoules a year of new gas development and gas is a, a major source of CO2 emissions and a quite a quickly growing one on a global basis. So, uh, so it really doesn't look all that flash from a renewables uh, point of view right now, but that's all I'll just say on that topic.
Okay. Well, look, let's leave it for there, David. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next few next week or so, particularly with the Zali Stegall um, push for the Climate Change Act, and we can only hope that that actually does come to pass. Having a legislated zero carbon target for 2050 will at least be a start. We can start working backwards and see what we need to do to actually get there. So um, I'd like to thank you. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Solaray Energy and Evergen, for their ongoing support. Thank you and, um, and the listeners. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. With technology developed in Australia with the CSIRO, Evergen customers can maximise the return on their sustainable energy investment. Visit evergen.com.au and take control of your energy bills. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.